As we continue worshiping our God through the book of 2 Corinthians, we have made our way to one of the many texts in this book that actually guided while we have entitled the entire series through the book, Spiritual Power in the Church. Today's sermon title is Resurrection Power, and our text shows us what it looks like when the life of the risen Jesus is present in our lives. That is the spiritual power in the church that we are pursuing in this sermon series. Put another way, this chapter makes absolutely no sense apart from the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in people walking in a fully surrendered fellowship with Christ in the context of a local church. Listen to the word of the living God, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you for all things are for your sakes so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is God's word to us. Father, we ask now that you would speak in a way that only you can, that the Holy Spirit would illumine this passage to us and apply to our lives exactly what it's teaching. Even though the all-surpassing treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ is contained in the earthen jars of clay of our lives. And even though we face so much difficulty, being afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, even death itself, oh, how we ask that come what may, you would show the greatness of your almighty power in preserving us and causing the life of Jesus to be manifested in our mortal flesh. 
Cause us who believe the gospel to speak the gospel. Cause us to know deep all the way down to our bones that you, the very one who raised the Lord Jesus, will raise us also and we will be presented with the saints in glory. Lord, we ask that your gospel, your grace in Christ would spread to more and more people. We pray that that would be the case right here in our Jerusalem, in Uptown, in Memphis, in our Judea, our city and counties, our Samaria, our state and beyond. To the ends of the earth, Lord, would you cause the gospel to go forward that thanks would abound to your glory and cause us, Lord, not to lose heart, even though our outer man is decaying. And let us see that the afflictions of this, light, of this life are light in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that's on its way for us. So focus our eyes on eternal things, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three things that we'll see in this text about how the power of the gospel, that is the life of the risen Jesus, impacts and affects those who believe upon him. Verses 7 to 12, we see counting the cost. Verses 13 to 15, preaching the gospel. And verses 16 to 18, keeping our focus on eternity. Verses 7 to 12, I said counting the cost, but really the question is something like this. Why so much hardship? If the resurrection power of Jesus is at work in us, why so much hardship? In this section, Paul is responding to a question that's raised in and among the church of Corinth in light of the gospel that he proclaims in contrast to the way his own life appears to be playing out on the surface. So the question would go something like this, Paul, if the good news that you proclaim is really the power of God, then why doesn't your life, why does your life have so much suffering and loss and death? And we could summarize Paul's response or his line of thinking in verses 7 to 12 this way. The fact that my body of clay, which was originally made from the dust of the ground, is not obliterated, even though it is a container carrying the glory of God in the gospel of Christ, is itself proof that the power belongs to God and not to me. Even further, the fact that my extreme hardships as a minister of God's good news have not led to me being crushed or despairing or forsaken or destroyed is an additional evidence of the power of the risen Jesus at work in my life. And to top it all off, the more acquainted I become with Christ's death, the more manifest through me bursts the beauty of Christ's life. And the Corinthians need look no further, as verse 12 concludes, than their own faith, their own life in Christ to see that the death that's at work in Paul means life for them. Well, let's unpack this. There are kind of four ways in verses 7 to 12 that Paul talks about counting the cost in light of the hardships that he has faced and how this is proof of the resurrection power of Christ. The first is verse 7, and it's simply, Do not forget that we are all but decorated dust. We have been made from the ground we are jars of clay. From dust we have come to dust we will return. And that's 
really what Paul's talking about in verse 7 when he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The ESV says, in jars of clay. Paul is saying that he is merely an earthenware vessel, a clay pot. But we are not to be duped into thinking that the value of the message is to be measured by the optics of the messenger. In fact, Paul's point is precisely the opposite. The surpassing greatness of the power is obviously of God and not from himself because of the frail nature of his humanity. So to illustrate the point, we could ask it like this. If somebody brought to you today a few hundred pounds worth of the world's most fine diamonds of the highest quality and purity, but they delivered that hundreds of pounds of uh, precious jewels to you in a wooden casket, a burial box, would you think that the diamonds were of any less value because of the container in which they were delivered? And the answer is obviously no. So similarly, God has chosen to accentuate his power by allowing the greatest possible exertion of his work, the gospel, to be carried around in earthen vessels, NAS, or jars of clay, ESV. And make no mistake, when Paul calls in verse 7, this treasure, he is definitely talking about the gospel. Or to pull from verse 4 and verse 6, immediately before this, he is talking about the inestimable value, the treasure of the gospel of the glory of God that is shown to us in the face of Christ. So when God saves sinners by transporting this glorious gospel through such mean and common creatures as we are, it is like what God did in the Old Testament account of Gideon's victory in war in Judges chapter 7 when God wrought the victory through an army of 300 soldiers. And it's not because the soldiers were well-trained or elite warriors. And it wasn't because in that context they were so good at blowing trumpets or carrying pitchers with torches inside of them. But it was because the Lord was fighting for them that they won the victory, even though they appeared to be totally incapable. And God told Gideon back in Judges 7 verse 2, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. And the same would be true of us. If God only used the impressive, if God only sent angelic hosts to proclaim the gospel to humanity, or only took the most elite, and put together among the human race to be ambassadors for Christ, then we would think the messenger might have something to do with the power. But God loves to work in such a way as tends most to his own glory for all the work, for all the accomplishment. Charles Simeon said poignantly, the gospel surpasses all that could have been conceived by the brightest intelligences of heaven. The gospel is so stupendous as to be absolutely incomprehensible in it 
The glory of the Godhead shines with a splendor never before seen, even by the angels around the throne. There is not a perfection in the deity which is not honored by the gospel and magnified far beyond what it ever could have been by any other object. And Simeon writes, by the ministry of a few poor fishermen, God triumphed over the powers both of earth and hell. He uses nobodies to talk about somebody that is the most significant person in the universe. Friends, the gospel is the greatest treasure in the universe. And make no mistake, because it comes to us so oftentimes through unskilled, ordinary, untrained men, the package is not the determiner of the value of the message and the one that it presents. In the gospel, we get all of God. We get God the Son who accomplished for us the plan of God the Father to forgive our sins and reconcile us to Himself as this work is sealed to our hearts by faith, by, God, by the work of God the Holy Spirit. We possess this treasure, verse 7, in earthen vessels. So that's the first. Why so much hardship, Paul? Well, the first thing is the treasure itself is in an earthen vessel. The second thing, though we're decorated dust, we ought not minimize our difficulties because they actually serve to, to accentuate God's power. This is verses 8 and 9. Paul uses four compare and contrast sort of situations um, to outline the fact that though we are weak, God's power is greater than any obstacle we face. And the four pairs God ta uh, uses to unfold this truth begin in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. The word afflicted was used earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul says, God who comforts us in all our affliction. And here it is again showing up, Paul saying, God does not allow us to be crushed, though we are afflicted. That means that God brought him comfort when he needed it the most. Um, <clears throat> this word crushed is used only one other time in the entire New Testament. It shows up in chapter 6, verse 12, where it carries the idea of uh, being squeezed so tight that you can't even breathe. And Paul is saying that God did not allow our affliction to get that heavy. This shows the power of God to not put on us beyond what is His Word says we are able to endure. And then verse 8, he uses a second pair. Though we are perplexed, we are not despairing. One commentator says it's impossible to perfectly reproduce this phrase in translation. Literally, it would read, as a loss, but not absolutely at a loss. What Paul is saying in this phrase is, though he is weak, God's power has been at work in him to keep him from total loss and despair. Saints, can you not testify to this? That though you've been afflicted, God has seen to it that your spirit not be crushed. Though you've been perplexed, can you not testify time and again that God has prevented you from total despair? 
This is the work of the Almighty in your life. And Paul is saying in his ministry of the gospel, these are the experiences where he has seen the faithfulness and power of God. Third, he says, persecuted, but not forsaken. This is the same word Paul used when he himself, as Saul of Tarsus, persecuted the church of God when he hunted down believers and he speaks of persecuting them in Galatians chapter 1 and being a persecutor of the church in Philippians chapter 3. But the word forsaken here, though we are persecuted, we are not forsaken. It's such a precious word. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that is in the Septuagint, which Paul would have had access to, he would have no doubt read in Genesis and Deuteronomy and Joshua where this word not forsaken is used in that Greek translation. And Paul knows that because God is the God of promise who never fails to keep his promises, he will never forsake his people. Paul knows the reason that this will not happen is because there was one who was forsaken for us. Oh, yes, Jesus is God's only begotten son, but he's also his only forsaken son. In fact, this word forsaken is the very word that Christ spoke from the cross when he cited Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul knows that the gospel means that deep down, no matter how severe our persecution may get, Christ endured forsakenness by the Father so that we would never have to be forsaken. This is what the power of Christ looks like in the lives of his persecuted people. And the fourth and final pair that Paul draws out is he says, we are struck down but not destroyed. These actually increase in intensity from the first pair to the fourth pair. This struck down Barnett said, reflects an extremity of suffering, an extreme suffering. Paul is saying, come what may, as difficult as it may get in life, or as he will speak of in the following verses, even in death. In the end, the God of all power will keep us for himself unto glory. The four pairs of God's care for his people actually prove what Paul asserted in verse 7. The surpassing greatness of the power is of God and not from ourself. So under our first point where we're considering though Christians are filled with Christ's resurrection power, the question might be why do we endure so much hardship? The third way Paul looks at this is in verses 10 and 11 that God actually has a glorious purpose in our sufferings. It's never in vain when the Christian walks through various valleys, whether those be just the normal valleys of living in a fallen world or especially those valleys where the hardship is brought on because of our fidelity to Christ. In verse 10, verse 11, look at the purpose statement that's repeated in these two verses. The so that... Verse 10, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal body. 
For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Do you see that the purpose is that Christ, that Jesus, shine forth from our lives. This is why there is so much hardship in the lives of the saints. It's not a martyr complex. It's not seeking more suffering. It's actually worse than suffering. In this case, it's dying. It's worse than hardship. Paul here refers in verse 10 to dying, or verse 11, being delivered over to death. These are two of my favorite verses in the Bible, and don't you love them? The repetition of that purpose statement, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Oh, for this work to happen in each one of us, Grace Church. Oh, for the life of Jesus to shine forth from our lives, for His aroma, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, to waft from our lives. And how often, Paul, should we so live upon the crucified Messiah, carry about in our body the dying of Jesus, even if it means our own death? How often should we embrace His death in our life? Verse 10, always. Verse 11, constantly. But see, it's not a martyr complex. It's not a morbid faith that's fascinated with our own dying. There's a divine purpose in our suffering. God is doing something. And something wonderful. He's actually causing our life to be the case, to be the display pedestal on which He sets the value of His Son so that the world can see how magnificent Jesus is. You see, we already know intuitively that we're not making Jesus look very valuable when we suffer and complain about it or turn our nose up at God or begin to question His purposes. You're showing His value when you suffer in such a way as you can say in the middle of it to live as Christ and to die is gain. When we suffer in such a way that shows that Jesus is more valuable than our next breath, our next heartbeat, He's more valuable than the cumulative total of our entire life, it doesn't make Jesus look greater than He is. It simply shows His greatness in a way that precious few other things can accentuate to our own lives, to fellow believers, and to a watching lost world. When Christ is more valuable to us than life, then the life of Jesus is manifested through us in our suffering and death. That's verse 10 and 11. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel-shaped life that we find in Scripture. And when Paul speaks of constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, let's not over-spiritualize it. Just fast forward into chapter 11 and you'll get a sense of what he's talking about. Before he wrote 2 Corinthians, he had already experienced the list of sufferings that he talks about in chapter 11. I'll just give you a sampling from two verses. Chapter 11, Paul speaks of being 
beaten times without number. The man lost count how many times he had been beaten because of his gospel labors. He says in the very next phrase, often in danger of death. He feared for his life, not once or twice, but often. And then he follows that with five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. They were not permitted by law to give 40 lashes to a man, but not three times or four times, but five times he was beaten within an inch of his life. And that's just, as I mentioned, a sampling from two verses. That's what he means when he says, always caring about the body, the dying of Jesus. The man had fallen in love with the Christ of the cross, and Paul was carrying his own cross. Does not the Lord Jesus deserve as much from us as he deserved from those brothers and sisters in the New Testament that we read of? Charles Simeon asked that question and then says, yes, we must count all things as loss and dung that we may win Christ. You see, friends, Christ's life flowing in and through our life is the best possible life. And what Paul's saying in chapter 4 is that even through our hardships, pain, suffering, and loss, even death itself, God is inviting us in to the sweet sanctum of fellowship with Jesus and having the life of Christ exude through our life. That's the blessed life. Christ's life flowing in and through our life is the best life possible. It's what we're created for. The fourth way Paul looks at these opening, uh, in these opening verses at his response to the why is life so hard question, if you're full of resurrection power, he says in verse 12, being part of God's God's, pardon, being part of God advancing his glory into the lives of others is totally worth it, no matter what you experience on that journey. He says in verse 12, so death works in us, but life in you. Do you see, Paul's saying that these hardships are, yes, his acquaintance with cross, and yet, yes, uh, not only an acquaintance with Christ's cross in a spiritual way, but also actually, Paul knows that he's on a collision course with death itself in time through natural causes, perhaps, but he had experienced enough to know that it was unlikely he would die of natural causes. But in his ambition to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, he was on his way to Spain, he hoped and prayed to get the gospel there. In his aim to get the gospel as far as possible, to as many as possible, to plant as many churches as possible, to see embassies of heaven erected on earth for the glory of God, he knew that it was unlikely that he would face a natural death, and I think that's what he's talking about here. Death works in us. But the result of that is life in you. Not like Paul's their mediator and he's now dying for their sins like Jesus did. No, it's not what he's saying. He's saying he knows that the gospel is valuable enough to get to every person on the planet. And even if it means dying for that mission, the life that that gospel produces in others is totally worth it. During this quarantine, Tracy's been reading 
Fox's Book of Martyrs to our family at the dinner table. We just read about the death of the apostles a few days ago. And the stories of their martyrdom for Christ is certainly a powerful stimulant for our own faith and for a confirmation that they believed the message that they proclaimed. And Andrew, the apostle's famous line as he was being led away to crucifixion for preaching the gospel, has been reported many times as, I would not have preached the glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. And Paul says, death works in us, but life in you. He knew that he was preaching about a crucified Messiah, but he knew that that crucified Messiah, though it may cost him his own life to preach that message, is the only way to bring life to others. The apostles all died that way, save John, the revelator. Peter was reportedly crucified upside down. Uh, Paul, who wrote this very letter, is reportedly beheaded for preaching the gospel of Christ. And you know what happened after all that carnage and death? All the apostles who lost their life, so many in the first century, those who suffered under the horricious, uh, hor horrific persecutions of those early emperors, Nero, Domitian, so forth. You know what happened after all that carnage and death? Here we are, 2,000 years later, still believing and preaching the very same gospel which they died to proclaim. So death works in us, but life in you. We're living testimonies of the truthfulness of that verse. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that even if it meant his own death, the reward of Christ's life being formed in the saints of the church at Corinth, was totally worth it to him. It's that Elliot ethic, isn't it? Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So the resurrection power at work in the lives of the souls of his people empowers us to desire that Jesus' life be manifested through us no matter what. The second part of this text, verses 13 to 15, and then the final part, verses 16 to 18, talk to us in further detail about the resurrection power of Christ at work in our life. And that is precisely what keeps Paul going in his aggressive efforts to expand the gospel in the known world in his day. That's 13 to 15. You can almost hear the question that's behind verses 13 to 15, and it would sound something like this. Well, can't you see, Paul, that the more you spread the good news of the gospel, the more difficult and dangerous your life becomes. So why don't you just take your foot off the accelerator and at least slow down a little bit until you get to glory. In Paul's response, verses 13 to 15, I think we could summarize like this. Death has no mastery over me. Believing the gospel leads to speaking the gospel because my faith is rooted in the fact that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise all the saints with him and present every last one of us before his face. So between now and then, everything I do is for the spread of the grace of the gospel to more people so that more people will experience the joy of salvation, give thanks to God, and glorify his name forever. Let's look at it. Verse 13, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. You see, because the good news is news, the gospel is an announcement, it is good news, because it's a message resident to the gospel is the necessity 
that it be told. At one level, Paul's argument is very simple in verse 13, isn't it? When someone believes the gospel, there's a consequence. They begin to speak the gospel. We believed, therefore we spoke. It is literally that simple. Let's not overcomplicate it. That's why when we're talking to, for example, prospective members at Grace Church, and I want you who are members to think back on this experience, if you can remember it. When we're seeking to learn as elders through the sharing care process, sitting down with them, hearing their testimony and so forth, but when we're sitting down trying also to learn how to best shepherd their soul, we ask everybody questions about the gospel. First, we want to seek to discern as best we can that they are embracing the true gospel. In our day, where there's so many aberrant, quote, gospels, we, we certainly want people uh, to be able to describe whether or not they're embracing the true gospel as their, as their hope for salvation. But another question we ask, Every prospective member is about lost people who are in their lives. And we ask that because we want to join them in praying for their acquaintances who are not yet in Christ to be saved. And the reason we talk about that right at the very beginning is because our spiritual health is not only to be monitored by our intake of biblical truth and growth and godliness. Now, that's, that's a huge part of it, but also to be measured by our joining God in His mission to bring others to Himself through Christ. God wasn't finished when He got to us. Therefore, simply put, we could say it the way Paul said it, I believed, therefore I spoke. Because as Romans puts it, faith comes by hearing and hearing the testimony concerning Christ People have to hear the gospel to be able to respond to it. And so those who believe the gospel speak the gospel. But on another level, what Paul's saying here, though it is simple, it's not as easy to see right on the surface. Now, it can be seen, and you don't need special powers of interpretation to see it, but you've got to do just a little bit of digging to see it. Because in verse 13, Paul says, according to what is written... I believed, therefore I spoke. And what he's referring to is Psalm 116, verse 10, which he cites. And that's where we have to do a little bit of digging to say, how does that psalm have any reference to what he's talking about in preaching the gospel? I believe, therefore I spoke. We believe, therefore we also speak. Well, a quick survey of that psalm shows the connection is that the psalmist was in a very similar situation to what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 4. One commentator showed, As with the psalmist, it is the Spirit who empowers Paul to believe and therefore also to preach. And so as we look through the psalm, let me summarize it for you. Psalm 116, 3 and 4. The psalmist is in a situation of death, only to be rescued by the Lord in response to his desperate cry for help, verses 1 and 2, verses 4 to 9. The psalmist's response is, therefore, to fulfill a vow of thanksgiving, Psalm 116, 12 to 14, as his sacrifice of praise, Psalm 116, 17. An essential aspect that commentator Haifman wrote is, one, an essential aspect of this praise is the psalmist's conclusion from this experience of suffering and divine rescue. 
that he is indeed God's servant. Psalm 116, 16. So too, Paul's experience of God's rescuing him from death leads to that same response of praise. And Paul had already written that at least four times. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, 2, 14, 4, 8, 9, 4, 15. So the conclusion is this from Haifman. Far more than merely a pious outburst of scriptural coloring, parentheses, like, Far more than Paul just grabbing an Old Testament verse, ripping it out of context and attaching it to his situation so that he sounds really spiritual. Far more than that, Haifman said, Psalm 116 provides an interpretive lens through which the apostle understands the significance of his experience in Christ, the suffering righteous one. Let me put that together. Like the psalmist, Paul is identifying himself as a recipient of God's saving mercies in Christ. Because he believes in the same Messiah that the psalmist hoped in, and because he has been saved by the same God that the psalmist was saved by, Paul too must tell of the glories of the Lord to his kinsmen as an essential aspect of his own praise to God. The way he worships God is by telling others how great God is and how willing he is to save, which is demonstrated in the life and labors of his glorious Son. This is the deal, friends. Our spiritual vitality is certainly to be measured by whether or not we are abiding in Christ our vine. John 15. That is absolutely essential to living the Christian life faithfully. But we all need the accountability and not dodge the reality that our spiritual health is also tethered to our witness for Christ. Being on mission with Jesus is a necessary part of what it means to follow him at all. Follow me, Jesus told the first apostles. But he didn't put a period there. He said, and I will make you fishers of men. It's the exact same with those of us who follow him today. He is commissioning us today to advance his gospel in the world by making disciples. And as those become disciples who hear the gospel message, they are to be clustered together in churches that baptize them and teach them to observe all that Christ commanded, meaning they go on to replicate the same process. To put put it simply, every Christian should be able to say with the psalmist and with the apostle Paul, I believed, therefore I spoke. In verse 14, Paul emphasizes that the gospel doesn't stop working all the way until glory. So how could we stop working if the gospel has invaded our life? Knowing, verse 14, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. What a clear statement of hope. What a statement of confident hope. Hope in the fact that we too, like Christ, will one day be raised from the dead. In fact, he is our first fruits. That's what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 1 Thessalonians 4.14, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. But this isn't, in 2 Corinthians 4, just an individualistic text about me and Jesus or about you and Jesus. The verse ends by summoning our attention to the endless sea of glorified saints who will also be raised with Christ on the last day, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and 
will present us with you. You see, we're going to be presented in glory with all the glorified saints. And this should inform the way we relate to one another as brothers and sisters and encourage and admonish one another and hold one another accountable and try to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We are on a freight train of the gospel to a certain glorified end. But this presentation in verse 14 is a presentation to Jesus. The focus is, just as He was raised from the dead, we're going to be raised from the dead with all the saints and will be presented to Christ. In Ephesians 5, that's what we get in that beautiful passage about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, who gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Dear ones, think about this. Every single sinner who has been united to the risen Jesus by faith will one day soon be presented to Jesus as a reward for His sufferings. Many have said that it is vitally important that you give your life to Christ, and that is absolutely, vitally important. Give your life to Christ. But have you considered the inexpressible glory that's coming on that day when you are presented to Him in unimaginable glory? as a trophy of His grace. That's what He's talking about there in verse 14. But verse 15 would say, the aim of God's glory, the manner in which He is glorified, is embracing Jesus. And the means by which that happens is the spreading of His glorious gospel to more people. And the result will be, God will be glorified if more people will believe his gospel message and give him thanks. Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Christ's resurrection power at work in the lives of God's people empowers us to keep seeking to advance the gospel as the primary objective of our lives. Paul wants them to know that his unwavering effort to spread the gospel of Christ, even in the midst of his increasing difficulties that he talked about in verses 8 and 9, and even death itself, verses 10 and 11, was for your sake. He says it again right there in verse 15. Just like he had said earlier, death works in us, life in you. Verse 15, all things are for your sake. Paul's saying, I'm gladly laying my life down for you. Or as he told the Philippians, for your progress and joy in the faith. Or as he told the Corinthians earlier, I'm working with you for your joy. 2 Corinthians 1.24 But look at the progression or the cause and effect that happens in verse 15. As grace spreads to more and more people, what happens? They abound in giving thanks to God. And as that happen, happens, what's the consequence? 
God is thereby glorified. The connections are so powerful. It's because of verses like this one that we say at Grace Church that we exist to glorify God. But the way we are seeking to do that is unapologetically treasuring Jesus Christ. And in this verse, I would say that's the grace he's talking about. It is the grace of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, to quote him in verse 4 and verse 6. The one who is the image of God. And we give God thanks for that grace that enables us to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And as we treasure Jesus in this way, because of that grace, and we give God thanks, we want others to taste that amazing grace too, because this will bring more glory to our God as they treasure Christ also, and they give Him thanks for His grace in their lives, which, as the verse concludes, brings Him glory. This is the aim of the Christian life, and it's what it looks like for the resurrection power of Jesus to be at work in us. Well, third and finally, Paul focuses on how to persevere in the faith. He's not blind to the challenges of life. He doesn't have his head in the sand. He knows that he's just a frail human creature, verse 7, a jar of clay. He's got all sorts of challenges, verses 8 and 9. Death itself knocks at his door, verse 10 and 11. He is not ignorant to the challenges of life. And so the question should come, and it does come, how do we persevere? How do we keep going? And Paul's short answer would be, focus on eternity. That's verses 16 to 18. Focus on eternity. He, he says first in verse 16, be realistic about both the physical and the spiritual dimensions of life. Verse 16, he doesn't deny that it's hard. He says, though we, we do not lose heart, therefore we do not lose heart. That's the therefore connecting to the previous because God's grace spreading more people, more people giving thanks to God, God being more glorified. Therefore, we don't lose heart. But our outer man is decaying. He's speaking about the fragility of his own physical body and the futility of this present evil age, I think, is included even in that outer man language he's talking about. If you look at the broader context of Corinthians, Paul's talking about the fact that this this world is futile and we should walk by faith and not by sight. And we can talk about that in the next chapter. But though our outer man is decaying, verse 16, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So the fragility of this physical body and the futility of this present evil age in comparison with the stability of his regenerated inner man nature and the enduring quality of the age to come causes Paul not to lose heart. He uses that same phrase in verse 1 of this chapter. We don't lose heart. And there it's because he received the mercy of Christ and he's been made a minister in the new covenant. Here he doesn't lose heart that even though his own body is decaying, God is at work in him every single day. We are being renewed day by day in our inner man. And that's going to continue, Paul knows, even unto glory. No matter who tried to discredit Paul, no matter who tried to shut him up, 
he had already bought in to the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth, who said unapologetically, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Paul wasn't living for the here and now. Paul wasn't a prisoner to the moment. Paul was living for eternity. And God had already began that eternal work deep in his soul of renewing him until that one day he would be perfectly renovated in the presence of Christ. God is renewing your inner man too, believer. And he will preserve us until glory. And for this reason, we don't lose heart. And another way we persevere is not only reckon with the reality that God is at work in our inner man, renewing us day by day, but also verse 17 tells us it's a math equation. Do the math for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Look at the way the formula works in this verse. It is simply stunning. This verse is not teaching that we should be thankful that trials will one day soon disappear and we'll be in heaven without pain. Now that's true, but that's not what this verse is emphasizing. This verse is stressing the fact that the afflictions we face today as believers are actually part of the equation that God will use to accumulate more glory for us in the age to come. But the proportion of the reward for faithfulness to Christ in the midst of trials now is so staggeringly massive that to compare that future glory with our present afflictions is not a worthy comparison. To look at the Two at the same time, all Paul can say is, it's far beyond comparison. Verse 17. That word Paul uses right there for beyond all comparison is used earlier in verse 7, where he says the surpassing greatness of the power. It's the same root word. And it's the word from which we get our word in English, hyperbole. And hyperbole, uh, we say, uh, means an exaggerated statement. It's just like, you know, it's a lie, but it's one of those lies where somebody's just like exaggerating to help you try to get a picture of something uh, bigger than they can describe. But here, Paul is not exaggerating. The coming glory is so wonderful that it cannot be over-exaggerated. You can't compare that glory with even the greatest of suffering here because the greatest of suffering in this lifetime for a believer is actually light and momentary in comparison with that glory. And think again about Paul's experience. This man who'd been beaten, often in danger of death, whipped by the Jews five times with 39 lashes and on and on we could go, stoned almost to death, his lifeless body drug out of the city and... This man calls all that light, momentary affliction. The way to persevere in the faith in face of trials is to see that it is those trials that are actually making heaven sweeter for you than if those trials had not existed. As you walk with Jesus, he will mix in challenges, he will mix in affliction, he will mix in pain, suffering, loss 
That's part and parcel to being in a sin-torn world, but it's also strategically woven into the lives of believers by our God, not because he's sinister, not because he gets kicks out of making things difficult for you, but because he is committed to making glory as weighty as possible for you. And he knows how to work in your life in such a way as to make heaven the most exquisitely wonderful, eternal bliss possible. And when you get there, you will see that every single suffering, every affliction was actually part of the ingredients that God used to sweeten heaven for you. God is weaving the trials into your story because he wants to take the coal of the furnace that you are in and press you into Christ-likeness through that furnace today, but also press that trial itself into a diamond of deeper enjoyment of Jesus in the age to come. Which brings us to the final phrase. Verse 18. This is how to persevere in the faith. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So what should we do? In light of afflictions, suffering, loss, challenges, rivet your focus upon the things that will still matter 10 million years from now. Give yourself to focusing on the things that you will be focused on in heaven a billion years from now. Don't look at the things which are seen and temporal, but the things which are not seen and eternal. When Christ's resurrection power is at work in you, you will know it because you will be enabled to persevere in the faith in the midst of affliction by keeping your eyes on the unseen eternal realities that await you in glory. You will know that the power of Christ is at work in you when you are convinced in the midst of the affliction that the weight of glory that's coming your way because of those afflictions is so surpassingly great that it cannot even be described in words of our human finite vocabulary. Those are unworthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And right now, when death is knocking at our door and when challenges are pressing us from every side, especially for our fidelity to Jesus, when men revile you and persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely on account of Jesus' name, what are you supposed to do? Defend yourself? No. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven Matthew chapter 5. So, in the here and now, the life of Jesus is being manifested as we always carry about in our body the dying of Jesus. And glory is becoming more weighty, more heavy, more consequential, more satisfying as we endure momentary light affliction and trust Jesus in the middle of it. So friends, you have a treasure. You have the greatest treasure in the universe. 
and you're carrying it around in a clay pot. Your life and your humanity shows as fragile as you are, as easily perplexed, struck down, persecuted, all the heavy things that come, as weak as you are, it shows that that treasure and the all-surpassing value of the, the greatness of the power of it is of God and not from you. So, focus on eternal things. Keep your eyes on Jesus. That isn't just preachy talk. That's Bible. That's Christianity. Christ Himself is the focus of heaven for all eternity. He is the sunshine that never allows a nighttime for all of eternity. His brightness fills glory forever. And if He will illumine us then and satisfy us then for endless ages, then surely He's enough for us now. May God draw our hearts to the risen Jesus who was forsaken for us so that we never would be. God bless you, Grace Church. I love you. Father, would you cause us to trust the risen Jesus and be faithful to speak the gospel that we have believed. Fix our eyes on eternal things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.